If you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Hey, think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, did you, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Angel. So we have just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, "I never heard of it in my life." And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' Now, now that's the." That is the only answer. That is the only answer. Man on the middle cross. Amen, yeah? This morning, we're going to close out Luke chapter 9, and we're going to see that man, Jesus, make the decision to go to that middle cross in Jerusalem. In fact, he's going to determine or resolutely set out toward that cross. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up. Luke chapter 9. We're going to finish Luke 9 this morning, be verses 51 through the end of the chapter, which is 62. <clears throat> You'll notice if you've been with us over the course of this series and you're perceptive to these sorts of things, we're shifting the color of the slides and, and whatnot. And this is the third time we've done that. That's because we're entering into the third large section in the gospel of Luke. The first big chunk was from Luke 1.1 to Luke 4.15, and that was like the presentation of Jesus, the Son of God, to the world. His announcement of his birth, his actual birth into the world, his childhood, and then this initial temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And then from 4.16 all the way up through 9, Luke 9 verse 50 was kind of the early ministry of Jesus, which is all about his identification, who does Jesus say that he is? Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Who do his disciples think that he is? What does his ministry say about him? And all of that took place in an area known as Galilee, which is like the northern part of where the Israelite people live in this time. And then in 951, which is where we're going to start this morning, Jesus 
makes the decision to journey to Jerusalem. And from 951 all the way into the middle of chapter 19 is what people typically group together and call the travel narrative in the gospel of Luke. That's going to be the third big section. And it's all about Jesus making his way to the cross, choosing to go there and then journeying there that he might be delivered up and crucified. And then from the middle of 19 to the end of the gospel of Luke is all about the passion of Jesus that takes place there in Jerusalem. What's interesting about each of those big sections is that Jesus is met by rejection at every step along the way. The gospel of Luke doesn't record it. The gospel of Matthew does. But after Jesus is born, Herod rejects Jesus, wants to have him killed. Chase, it leads to uh, Joseph and Mary taking Jesus away for a time. Then right after the start of Jesus' public ministry, he makes an announcement that he is the fulfillment of this passage from Isaiah and the people in the town of Nazareth run him out and want to throw him off of a cliff. He gets rejected in his hometown, and now he's going to make a decision to go to Jerusalem, and the first thing that's going to happen is that he's going to get rejected by a town in Samaria, a town of Samaritan people. And then ultimately, when he gets to Jerusalem, the Pharisees are going to reject him. They're going to turn the crowds against him, and he'll be crucified. All the while, from manger to triumphal entry, from triumphal entry to crucifixion, Jesus is determining to go to that middle cross in order that you and I might be welcomed into the glory of perfect eternal communion with God in heaven if only we would receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the movement of the gospel of Luke. This is a big transition point in that movement from ministry in Galilee to the cross in Jerusalem. So if you've got the gospel of Luke open there in front of you, hard copy, digital copy. I'm going to start in verse 51. We're just going to read it through to verse 62. It says this. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us pages upon pages upon pages that reveal to us who you are, reveal to us who we are and our need for a savior, and then display in striking clarity the beauty of your son, Jesus, and his work on our behalf. God, this morning, would you help us to cherish the gospel, to see it clearly? God, would our hearts be reminded of its beauty and what it means for us, God? 
maybe for the very first time would we see the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. God, would your Holy Spirit be here among us this morning, take the truth of your word, press it into our hearts, God. Mold us into your image. Show us what it is to be a follower of yours. God, give us a fresh glimpse, a clear glimpse of that man on the middle cross who has told us that we can come. God, would you do that here in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're gonna do this. We're gonna spend some time in verse 51. That's the big transition verse. And there's some kind of textual work that we need to do, not just with verse 51, but really with verses 51 down to 56. So we'll take all of that first. And that's where we're gonna see Jesus determined to make this journey to the cross and to Jerusalem. Then we're gonna take the next chunk, which is Jesus kind of discipling his disciples and his would-be disciples about what it really means to follow him. And we'll see what it means for us to live a life that is a determined journey because of what Jesus has done for us that others might know the truth of the gospel. The big takeaway this morning is this, that the forsaking of comfort led to the securing of our salvation. More specifically, Jesus's forsaking of comfort led to the securing of our salvation. Look at verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. That verse, it's one sentence in English, it's one sentence in Greek, but there are a a number of difficulties in translation. That's why what you have in front of you, if you've got a different version than the CSB, might actually read fairly differently than what I just read from up here. One reason is because one of the words in that sentence is a word that's used only one time in all of the New Testament. It's used in this verse, which means that there aren't multiple places for scholars to look in order to get the right sense of the translation. That word is what the CSB renders as time for him to be taken up. If you've got a C or an ESV, that's what yours says as well. If you're holding a New International Version, an NIV, yours says it was time for him to be taken up to heaven, adds that little clarifier on the end. If you've got a New Living Translation, yours says it was time for him to ascend to heaven. If you've got a NASB, it says it was time for his ascension. If you're holding a New King James or a King James Version, it says that it's time for him to be received. It's the only place this word is used in all of the New Testament. And so trying to get the sense of it is what English translators have to do. Here's what we know for certain. It's time for Jesus's leaving of the earth. And now that includes everything that's going to come before that leaving. Jesus has told his disciples twice in this chapter, Luke, what we have is Luke chapter nine, that he's going to be rejected, killed, and raised on the third day. He's told them a second time that he has got to be rejected, that he will be despised. That is all going to take place, and then Jesus is going to leave, and he's making a decision to do something in light of the fact that that whole event, rejection, death, uh, resurrection, ascension, is about to happen. And what he decides to do in response to that whole event taking place is the second translation difficulty in verse 51. It's actually a combination of words that gets rendered a number of different ways depending on your translation. 
Reading from the CSB, which is what we use from the front up here, we're told that he determined to journey to Jerusalem. If you've got an NASB, it says the exact same thing. If you're holding an ESV, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. If you've got an NIV or an NLT, the phrase is that he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you're holding a King James or a New King James, it's the most verbose in its attempt to render this phrase. It tells us that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus knows that this event, his rejection, death, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension from earth is about to happen. And in response to knowing that that's about to happen, he makes a decision to go to Jerusalem. If we were to put this into like colloquial 2021 English, we would say that like he decides to face that. We use the phrase oftentimes about hard things that we need to do and we say that we're going to lean into it. Jesus makes a decision to lean in to what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem. Only in this instance, it requires a journey. And so Jesus decides to go to where he needs to go in order to to have happen what he knows is going to happen. All of the hard work that scholars do in translating that phrase is in order to let us know a few things. Number one, Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He knows that the time is getting close for him to be taken up. He knows that the time is getting close for him to be rejected, killed, and to resurrect. That whole event is going to happen as one unit, and it's time for that to happen. And when we think about the beauty of the gospel, when we think about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we need to remember that he chose to go there. The crucifixion did not happen to Jesus as if he were some sort of unwilling participant. He's miles away in Galilee, knows what has to happen, and chooses to go there chooses it. It's time for that thing to happen. And in order for that thing to happen, he's got to go to Jerusalem for it to take place. He's going to go there. And so by making this decision, after the transfiguration, after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, after all the high point of this identification of who the Son of God is, he makes a decision, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to put into motion the events by which he's going to be killed. This is the Son of God sovereignly enacting what needs to happen. And he needs to go to Jerusalem in order for that to take place. And then third, Jesus knows that what's coming is not going to be pleasant. That's why the decision is resolute, why it's steadfast, why he determines to do it. If this were going to be easy, you wouldn't need those adjectives. Nobody says, I steadfastly determined to get a puppy. No one says that because it's pleasant. Jesus knows that what's about to take place in Jerusalem is not going to be enjoyable. And so he makes a steadfast, resolute, determined decision to go there. That's the glory and the beauty of the man on the middle cross. There are three crosses there when Jesus gets crucified. 
The other two individuals on the left cross and the right cross, they made decisions that landed them there as a necessary consequence for the things that they had done. Jesus, on the other hand, willingly walks there. Having done nothing to deserve being crucified, he makes a decision to go to that place anyway. He determined, he resolved, he steadfastly set his face to go to that cross. Why? Well, because what we said last week, that greatness for Jesus is defined by the cross. For the glory and the beauty of the gospel, Jesus sets his face to go to that middle cross. That's the place where the glory of God is going to rip through all the darkness and brokenness of the world and shine in all of its clarity that all of humanity might see the beauty and the glory of who God is. Jesus chooses to go there in order to accomplish the display of that glory. He goes to Jerusalem to secure our salvation by embracing the cross. And we are the humble, gracious, awestruck recipients of the grace and the glory and the beauty of that act. The forsaking of comfort led to the securing of our salvation. Jesus' forsaking of comfort led to the securing of our salvation. And when we see it in this sort of moment, it's a decision to make a long trek on foot to Jerusalem. But when you zoom yourself out and you think about the whole totality of what God is doing, this determined journey that Jesus makes to the cross did not start in Luke 9, 51. It didn't even start at Jesus's birth back earlier in the gospel of Luke. It started in eternity past when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made an eternal decision that this was the means by which the glory of God was going to be displayed for humanity. And since that moment, the Son has been determined to go to this place on your behalf. He chooses to go there. He makes a determined journey to the cross in your place. That is the wonder of the gospel. He forsook the comfort of heaven and then he makes a decision while on this earth to forsake the comfort of his temporal body that he might secure our salvation. And that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is one that's southward. And in order to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, an individual would have had to have crossed through an area, crossed through an area known as Samaria. A typical Jewish person at this time would have actually increased the length of the journey to swing around Samaria and avoid the entire region. And the reason for that is because there is a ethnic, racial, religious tension that exists between Jewish people and Samaritan people. And it was better to just increase the length of your walk to avoid having to deal with that tension. And so we're told in verse 52 that Jesus decides, I'm not going to avoid this. We're going to go right through Samaria. So in verse 52, he sends messengers ahead of himself. They enter a Samaritan village in order to make preparations so the group has someplace to stay as they're making this walk. Really briefly, why the tension? If you want to jot this down, you can go back and look at it later. Jot down 1 Kings chapter 16. That is in an era of the Old Testament where the history of Israel at that time, the nation is split into two. There's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and there's a succession of kings that lead in both of those places. At one point, a king named Omri rises in Israel, and he buys for 150 pounds of silver 
basically an area that includes a city with a hill on it. That city gets named Samaria. The whole region ends up taking on that name. And the people that live there, the Jewish people that lived there at the time, they end up intermarrying with Gentile individuals. And so what you have are people who do not have fully Jewish heritage, bloodlines. They don't have entirely Samaritan heritage or bloodlines. They also are entirely Gentile heritage or bloodlines. They also don't have entirely pure Jewish religious practices. They don't have entirely pagan Gentile religious practices. They're just this mixture of both. And so the people of Samaria, Samaritans, are hated by Jewish individuals because of that mixture But it goes both ways. Samaritan people also hated Jewish people. So it was just easier to avoid the area. Jesus says, we're going straight through it. Two of the disciples are sent out as messengers, and the town rejects Jesus. We're told that in verse 53. They did not welcome him. Why? He was determined to journey to Jerusalem. This is a Jewish man. He's going to a Jewish place to worship at the Jewish temple. We're good. Don't come here. They know something about Jesus, and they're not interested in having him stay the night. And so in verse 54, we get two disciples' response, James and John, their brothers. They hear about this rejection, they see this rejection, and they say, well, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just obliterate them? That's their answer to the problem. And then in verse 55, Jesus turns to James and John, rebukes them, and we're told that they go on to another village. There's bad blood. And there's some combination in James and John of like a righteous zeal for the honor and the respect and the the reality of who Jesus is, that's in there, with like this kind of worldly, fleshly desire that they get what they deserve for disrespecting the Son of God, and then also the dark, fleshly reality of their ethnic, racial, religious prejudice. And it's all one sort of weird ball of righteous zeal and ugly motives that are smashed together, and that, brothers and sisters, is most of us in all things. That there is some righteous passion, but it's mixed with our own flesh and our worldly desires and our ugly motives, and we need the Holy Spirit at all times to help us figure out what's the righteous thing and what's the ugly thing and what needs to be sanctified and what do we cling on to because it's of the glory of God. And in the mix of all of that, James and John say, just burn this place. Consume them, Lord. And it's like this Jonah moment, right, where Jonah the prophet is sent to Nineveh, a group of people that Jewish individuals did not like, and God sends Jonah there in order to proclaim to them salvation. And at one point, Jonah's sitting on a hill outside the city, hoping that God will just take the whole thing up in flames. But God has something better than that. I want to bring something out. If you're holding a New King James or a King James Version, or even if you're holding an older version of like an NASB or even an older version of an NIV translation. When I read verses 54 to 56, it might have sounded wildly different than what you're holding in front of you. I'm gonna put this on the screen. It's helpful for all of us to see it. This is the way it's rendered in the New King James. 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? That's not in most modern English translations. And then it goes on. But he turned and rebuked them. And then this is not in most modern translations. And said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Then they went to another village. It's the case with all of the books of the New Testament, all the books of the Bible, actually, that scholars have multiple, sometimes many ancient manuscripts that they're working to translate from into English. At times, there are small discrepancy in those manuscripts, basically the ancient version of a typo, where scholars are looking at a number of manuscripts, and some of them just have like a word missing, and it's obvious that the copyist at the time who was writing by hand just missed that particular word. In other places, there are additions to the text that appear in some manuscripts, but not all manuscripts. As time and scholarship progresses forward, as more and more ancient manuscripts are found, those teams of scholars are able to develop a clear picture of what is and what is not of the original text. Typically, the way that works is that the discovery of more manuscripts, more older manuscripts, show us what was original versus what became an addition later. And what would happen, that's not malicious on anyone's part, but it would essentially be commentary material. That a Jewish scholar uh, back in antiquity is writing and copying these texts, and they would insert some commentary that then a future copyist would end up copying into the text. And so what you have here, especially in what's attributed to Jesus there in the second paragraph, is most likely the commentary that explains what's happening in this passage. Jesus rebukes, turns and rebukes the disciples. That is the original. And then we get a quote. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. If you've got a modern translation that has footnotes, it's very likely that you have a footnote that says some manuscripts include that phrase. If you've got a study Bible of a modern translation, it's likely that your study notes include some sort of note that says, hey, this phrase is present in some manuscripts, but does not appear to be in the original, from the original text. What we do know is that the early church would have accepted that commentary material as helpful and true to the meaning of the passage. I point all of that out in order to say this. Number one, if you were reading along and you had a translation that had those words in it and I was reading and you're like, hey man, you just read something wildly different than what's in front of me. It's worth it for us to bring that forward and say, I'm not making something up up here. There's a reason it's different. The other reason it's important to point it out is that that parenthetical material, that sort of commentary material, is absolutely an accurate picture of how Jesus is discipling his disciples here. It gives us insight into the way that the passage has been understood historically. They want fire to come down from heaven. Jesus rebukes them because Fire is not what's coming from heaven. And so I want to just make a few points here in terms of the discipleship of the disciples that I think is also helpful for us today. The first one is this. Judgment, in an eternal sense, is a reality that's coming. And judgment is something we righteously weep over. Jesus talks about the reality of eternal judgment all throughout his ministry. He does not shy away from it, but he also does not rejoice 
in it. Jesus talks about coming judgment in order to plead with people to repent from their sin and to come to him. Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem at the end of this travel narrative, and when he gets to the outskirts of the city, at the end of that journey, he is going to weep over Jerusalem because of the judgment that he knows is coming to some of the people that live there. Just a couple of weeks from now, we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is going to pronounce a woe over a couple of cities. That woe is a lament. Ah, oh, that you would repent because judgment is a reality and it's coming and it's worth weeping over. But the disciples don't just want judgment. They want something that's more akin to vengeance. That's what's wrapped up in the ball of fleshly motives here when the disciples, James and John, say, why don't we just call it on some fire and take this place up and smoke, Jesus? Vengeance is something that we sinfully lust for. Our flesh wants vengeance when someone does us wrong. We want retribution or revenge, and those are sinful fleshly urges. The place that this shows up in the darkest way for followers of Jesus is that when we see the world lost in its sin, and we think that the best thing that Jesus could do would be to just come back and give judgment to those sinners. We want vengeance. Give them what they deserve, Jesus. Now, it's right that we have a zeal for the holiness of who God is. And it's right that we understand that judgment is coming. But we should weep over that judgment, not hasten it so that these sinners could spend eternity apart from God. We weep over the reality of the judgment that God will perfectly administer at the end of all things. And then the third piece of this, and there's a typo on this line, I apologize. The third piece of this is that justice is something we eternally long for. Revenge, retribution, vengeance, that's how the sin of our flesh twists a good longing for justice into something dark and wicked. We're all hardwired to desire justice. God is perfectly just. And as those who are made in his image, we long for justice. It's when our flesh grabs hold of that and turns it into vengeance that there's a problem. God is going to bring perfect, eternal justice to all things. We can be absolutely sure of that. And because we can be sure of that, we can leave it to him. We can weep over the reality of judgment that will come to those who are not saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we can crucify the flesh within us that wants vengeance on our timetable rather than justice on God's. And the glory and the beauty of this whole interaction and why I wanted to spend so much time here is because the disciples want fire from heaven to swallow up this town. That's what they want in their sinful, shallow, ugly fleshliness. But God has sent something better than fire from heaven to bring judgment. He has sent his son to bear judgment for the sin of that town. He has sent his son to swallow up the consequences of your sin, brothers and sisters, rather than fire to swallow you up. That's the beauty of the gospel. And Jesus the parenthetical understanding of this passage is he didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
And so Jesus does with the disciples what he told them to do earlier in chapter 9 when he sent them out to do ministry. If you come up on a town and they do not accept you, shake the dust off your feet and move along. And so Jesus rebukes the disciples and their fleshly desire and just moves them along to another town. God's not sending fire to consume this town. He has sent his son and judgment will consume the son that your sin might be swallowed up by the man on the middle cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. The forsaking of comfort led to the securing of our salvation. Jesus takes that judgment upon himself. Then there are three rapid-fire interactions here from verses 57 to 62. They all involve a would-be follower of Jesus. The first one comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then Jesus reaches out to a second person and says, follow me. And that person says, I will follow you, but first let me go and bury my dead father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You go spread the news of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 61, someone else approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to those at my house. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three interactions with three individuals who want to put a qualifier on their following of Jesus. And so we're gonna take all three of these together What these individuals want is to dictate the terms under which they follow Jesus, and Jesus corrects them in all three cases. The first one, he doesn't know exactly what he's signing up for, and so Jesus clarifies the reality of it. I'm homeless in the world that I created. That's what it means to follow me. The second one wants to go back and bury his dead father, which could also mean that he wants to go back and wait until his father dies, and then he will bury his father and come and follow Jesus. And the third one wants to go back and tend to some affairs at his house. Jesus corrects all three of those. We're often similar to these would-be followers of Jesus, wanting to dictate the terms under which we will follow Christ. And oftentimes, the terms by which we want to dictate things are those which bring us the most security or the most comfort. Now, our longing for that security or our longing for that comfort is what keeps us from making any sort of sacrifice when it comes to following Jesus. And so you take the words of Christ from before the transfiguration. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Well, deny myself. Hold on. Jesus, I will follow you. But what if the denying of myself means that I've got to sacrifice some security in my life? Can I dictate the terms of that? Take up my cross. Crucify my sin. Well, what about the sin that I get some comfort from? All of us, buried deep down inside of us, know the reality that the difficulty with crucifying our flesh and crucifying our sin is that we think we get something good from the sin that we do. And so if I've got to crucify that, what happens to the comfort that comes from it? that I have taken from that from the, for the entirety of my life or for this last season of life. Can I dictate the terms of that, Jesus? Follow you? What if there are risks? These followers that Jesus interacts with, they all have reasons for wanting to dictate these terms, not wanting to disrupt the comfort of their lifestyle, 
What if there's something in their past life that they want to hold on to? What if something happens within their circumstances and following Jesus makes it hard to navigate those circumstances? But the reality of following Jesus is that the security of our salvation enables the forsaking of our comfort. We don't have to just grit our teeth and endure the challenges of life because doing so is somehow going to prove to Jesus that he ought to save us. He's already made the decision to go there in eternity past to secure our salvation. He's the one who has saved us. Like Alistair Begg said at the start of that little sermon illustration that we began with. If you stand before the Lord and you're asked, how did you get here? And you start your answer with I, I believed I did this, I did that. You've started in the wrong place. It begins with he. He went to the cross. He died in my place. He saved me. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, he holds you secure in his hand. Nothing can take you out of there. And that security that he earned for you on the cross means that you can forsake your comfort that other people might see the Savior. That's what this whole thing is built around. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go do what? Proclaim the kingdom of God. That is the reason why we would forsake our comfort. We look forward and not back because the gospel compels us forward. We forsake our comfort, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus to help others see that the man on the middle cross is beckoning them to come. That's what a life of following Jesus is all about. And in this moment, Jesus knows time is short. It's time for me to be taken up. The gospel is serious. Don't put your hand to the plow and then look backward. He knows that judgment is a real thing and he weeps over it. He knows that eternal justice is going to come. And in response, he wants his followers to live as if those realities are true. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've received God's grace for your salvation, then our priorities ought to reflect the seriousness of those realities. Jesus has forsaken comfort and gone to the cross to secure our salvation. And because of the security of that, we can forsake our comfort so that others might know him. The exact following, our details of our following of Jesus don't look the same for each and every individual. It's not every follower of Jesus's obedient response to end up in a position like this in full-time ministry. It's not every follower of Jesus's obedient response to sell all their stuff and go to an unreached people group. The exact details look different, but Jesus has told us what the similarities are. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. You put your hand to the plow and you look forward with the cross directly in front of you and you help other people see that reality. You stand in the security of your salvation, forsake the comforts of this world that others might know the glory of the gospel. And in doing that, you will find fullness of life. I always hesitate to hold up like certain human figures as examples, particularly because a lot of the human figures we hold up, they, they were like missionaries or they were preachers or something like that. And I don't ever want to give the indication that in order to really follow Jesus, that's who you need to be. Now, if, if God 
calls you to that, then you're denying of yourself and you're forsaking of comfort and you're taking up of your cross. It means obediently following. But following Jesus in its specificity can look different for different people. But I want to end with an illustration of a man named William Carey. He was a missionary to India and much of the way that he structured his going to India in order to share the gospel is what started like the modern missions sort of model and movement. So in 1793, he makes a decision that he's going to take his family. They're going to get on a boat. They're going to go to India. And he exchanged letters back and forth with his father, both before he uh, went and after. And in the letter that he wrote his father, right before getting on the boat to go over to India, he included a single sentence in the middle And he said, Father, I will put my hand to the plow. He died in India. Never came back. He was there until 1834 when he passed away. So for 40 years. The security of his salvation that was earned for him by Jesus Christ on the cross enabled him to forsake the comfort of this life that other people might know the glory of the gospel. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Jesus makes a determined journey on your behalf to that middle cross that he might beckon you to come. And in response, we live a life that is a determined journey that other people might know Jesus. You were saved for the glory of God. You live a life for the glory of God. And the means by which you do that is you point people to the man on the middle cross who went there for the glory of God that you might be able to come to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.